Hello and welcome to B2Beast, the best place to collect killer ideas for big business. And today we have got a beast in the building. He is a best-selling author, an elite entrepreneur with eight exits under his belt, and a doctoral candidate in marketing and AI. He's currently the CEO of Growth Team AI, where he guarantees subscription-based businesses can double their growth rate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Travis Stefan. Thanks for having me. Uh, Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for sharing your time, your talent, your expertise with us here today. Super, super grateful. Um, And on that note, would love to hear where are you tuning in from today and what are you most grateful for right now? I'm tuning in from Marina Del Rey, California, right on the west edge of LA. So if you hear any barking outside, it's probably the sea lions. Um, And then uh, uh, in terms of what I'm most grateful for today, outside of all the the normal stuff, family, friends, health, et cetera, all the things you should be grateful for every day, um, just kind of inspiration, creative inspiration, the vitamin I, as I like to call it, you know, the, the, um, energy and excitement and enthusiasm that infuses you with every time you're struck by lighting by it. Yes. Love it. That is a great frequency and tone, uh, to be in. And I think it, it speaks volumes for, um, with a direction with we're heading with this conversation, um, would love to start digging into your story. Um, and there's a lot of chapters, a lot of wins. So this might be a difficult question to answer, but what would you consider the most exciting win of your career? Or what's a big milestone you've hit recently that you're really proud of? The most, so two two de- very different questions, right? Um, I would say the first one is is not what you would expect. I'd, when I started my first company, I was completely unfamiliar with all things entrepreneurship. The entrepreneurial idea factory between your ears had not turned on for me yet. I was still kind of getting a a feel for what this life was like and trying to figure out, am I, you know, a good, in a good situation to actually be this person? I didn't have a business background. I didn't have any mentors. We didn't grow up with any money. Uh, so I had to really learn on the fly. And one of the first people that I saw that kind of looked and acted like me were actually the guys behind tap out. If you remember tap out, right? Oh my gosh. Um, so I do. I, yeah. Early on uh, in my career, I actually was fighting professionally. I, I fought in the States, I fought in Thailand, uh, and then finally c- kind of came to my senses around uh, the fact that I was not going to be an elite mixed martial artist or anything like that and opted to retire at 21. Um, despite having not yet lost in my career, it, I just realized that I was not destined for greatness uh, just through a couple of very unique experiences with really, really, really great athletes. And while that obsession for the sport still remained, I realized that being behind the businesses that support the industry was something that I was more interested in at that time. And that was a, pl- a, a crew that was killing it at the time. They were, I think, doing like 500 million a year. 
And they were just tatted up, profane guys, much like I was at the time, still am tatted up for sure. But um, I just, it was the first moment where I didn't have this caricature of an entrepreneur in my head that looked like somebody who wore a suit and went to a fancy school and got a business degree and worked their way up and finally branched off and started their own thing. I didn't know how that happened. I just saw that these guys were doing this thing and I said, I could probably do that too. So I basically started a, a, almost like a ripoff of tap out and called it something different. And thankfully eventually sold it and kind of maybe a little bit more than broke even on it at the end of the day, but it was my paid education. Years later, I actually, through a series of events, became business partners with one of the founders of tap out, Dan Caldwell. He's still a great friend to this day. And I would say my most proud moment in my career because of how how much of a catalyst their story was for me in getting started it was just like being around gods right and just being around that that guy specifically there was a day that we were chatting on the phone and he said something that just I'll never forget we were just having a normal conversation he said you know I really look up to you in this way and I was just like slack-jawed that this person that basically single-handedly got me into entrepreneurship and I just worked so hard to get even remotely into his ecosystem. The fact that he said that to me was earth shattering and still is kind of a, a hard to believe thing to this day. Cause I think we often pedestalize our, our heroes, our inspirations, like things like that. And at the time, you know, what those guys were doing was pretty groundbreaking and the stories that they had of how things happened were fascinating. So um, that would be the one of the moments that I was that I'm still most proud of to this day in entrepreneurship. Um, your second question, I think, was about like the most recent milestone or something like that. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I'm still absorbing that whole <laughs> your whole story, uh, especially since it is so poetic um, of that coming full circle. Like you literally can't write that type of story like into into a movie um so seeing those poetic moments um we see it over with those pedestals those heroes those idols like they're humans like they're people <laughs> and I've, I've seen those moments i had a similar moment with lewis house who had kind of turned me pulled me heard the right message at the right moment at the right year um and it started pulling me towards media and podcasting and i eventually had a moment of sitting on a call with Lewis house and like getting a job offer. Nice. And I was like, what is happening? And we eventually, I had to turn down that offer to build the vision of what we were, we're, we're pursuing today. Good. But those moments, those signals you start to realize is like, these people are attainable. These, you can do this stuff. Like you can do this on your own and seeing that moment of your journey being inspired by the tap out guys. And then years later, it comes full circle and they're the one giving you props. Love it. Absolutely amazing. That's indirectly. Yeah. One of the, it was it, it, what I was heading towards anyway. So it's something very prideful, exciting, fun anyways. So you nailed it by my, by my count, um, a brilliant response. Let's perhaps explore the opposite end of the spectrum um, when things perhaps weren't so glorious and weren't working out as great, what would you consider your biggest quote unquote failure uh, or expensive lesson, uh, in business or your careers thus far? Wow. Buckle up. Okay. Yeah. So, um, 
This was shortly after exit number five. And by the way, when people Google me, like I don't often, you know, just like post this information for search to index, but I do openly talk about this stuff. Uh, so when people Google me, they don't necessarily see these stories. But if you've heard me on any interviews, um, I really do openly talk about all this stuff. I think it's critical for, you know, entrepreneurs. I think it's dangerous, by the way, to take a lot of advice from entrepreneurs who haven't had a massive crash and burn failure that would humble you. Um, because the, or if they just have succeeded one time and they've only been in that one business forever, it's difficult to take advice from that person because everything that they know works, works in their specific use case. Right. So contextually speaking, you know, I think it's, it's super healthy and critical for entrepreneurs to go through things that are big enough to have a high risk of failure and to actually go through that and pull themselves out. So for me, I would say the one that comes up that's actually an interesting story. And there have been several failures, by the way. Yes, I've had eight, eight exits, but I've had companies not exit as well. <laughs> like we've had companies that we've had to shut down. I've bought some of my own companies with my other companies that I don't count as exits at all. It's just like, hey, let's roll these assets in and see if we can use them in some way. But one that was uh, kind of more impactful, I'd been working with a business partner of mine. His name was Simon, Simon Turner for about seven years. We had... Uh, uh, and exit together. Um, and then I started another company without him. And it was basically a way to fractionally rent access to a full product team for companies that don't have one. So you have like product manager, designer, uh, engineer, strategist, et cetera. Right. Um, and you could just rent fractional access to, you know, company uh, to, to that group and they would do things the right way. And really cool company, um, ended up not really enjoying it because it got more into agency land than I cared to at the time. Um, a lot of client babysitting, um, a lot of long, long hours, not the same life as, as a tech company. Right. So through that lens, we ended up selling the company about a year in to graphic arts firm in Manhattan, and uh, they wanted to expand their product portfolio and things like that and service their customers more deeply, really smart move. And at the time, I was still in my mid-20s and I hadn't really experienced a, a hardcore punch in the face. And I was flying pretty high after you know a string of wins, thinking I was just God's gift to entrepreneurship. And the universe needed to send me a reminder that uh, I wasn't. And I had bootstrapped exclusively at that point in my career. And I'd done so in really risky ways without realizing how risky. You know, the things I heard happening to other people, oh my God, it can't happen to me, right? That's, that just is reserved for other people. I'm a pro. Um, so all of that when combined is the recipe for poor decision-making, right? So, um, so when I signed the deal, I, we, we didn't go with an M&A broker. Uh, we didn't go with an iBank. Uh, I just used an attorney to help me vet the contract. And I just wanted to sell the business. Like I really wanted to sell. Uh, so we actually compromised on certain terms that I, I normally would not have, have done. So um, part of those are, you know, twofold. One, it was the fact that we agreed to an earnout, which, you know, I often won't do. I would rather take a, a lower purchase price, uh, and have it just be a solid, you know, one shot deal, right. If, if at all possible, and there have been times where that hasn't been the case, but for the most part, when we make a deal, the deal is made. These are the terms. Um, and, so we agreed to the earnout, and then also like without really realizing it or having been an attorney or anything like that ever, um, in the indemnifications and the reps and warranties sections in acquisition agreements, especially when you start to get into a little bit bigger numbers, there are things that can be really scary, right? 
And a lot of those clauses are purposefully written in a kind of murky, open for interpretation kind of way. And as the seller, it's your best interest to get as much absolute clarity as, as possible uh, so that you can minimize the potential for somebody to come after you for you know indemnifications, right? Whether it's partial purchase price or full purchase price or anything like that. We didn't do that because I didn't know that that was an issue. You know, I didn't go to law school and I, I had done this a couple times before and it hadn't been an issue before, but we actually sold the company and the buyers just had a very different company culture and they were very like grind you to the bone managers. And I had, I was, I'm a big, big, big company culture person. You know, we want to make the best possible place to work so we can get great talent different philosophies. Both can work, I suppose, right? But I just don't believe in one and very much believe in the other, personally. And because of that, the staff, when indoctrinated into that corporate culture, started to revolt and quit in mass. And so what happened because of the way that that deal language was written or or wasn't, right? Um, the buyer came back and said, hey, um, we're going to pop you for a full purchase price indemnity. And you know, we're taking your company. You're not going to get another dime from us. Go kick rocks, right? Now, as crazy as that sounds, here's the crazier part. I had taken, and I told you about like how much of a risk, and pre-entrepreneurship, I was a professional online poker player, mind you. So no stranger oh to risk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? No no stranger to risk. I'm completely yeah. immune to it. Like, give me all of it, right? That's That was my attitude. Um, so we took that buyout agreement, myself and Simon Turner, right? We took that buyout agreement and leveraged it to build the next company. And, you know, it was, um, which means, by the way, if anybody's unfamiliar with leveraging, it means we're taking out a loan on the language of the deal. So the, the lender would get the actual payments from the buyer of the prior company, and we would get an upfront chunk that would be less than the overall amount. And we get to use all that money today to go build this company. And it was going really well. And we're about three or four months in to, you know, a free release of the product. We had maybe a quarter million users on the platform. We hadn't monetized yet, but it was going really well. The viral loops are starting to really pick up. And because of how all this happened, the lender, like we actually had to go to the lender and say, hey, the buyer reneged. Can we, you know, renegotiate some of our terms? And they called the loan. There was basically like no other option for us early on, by the way. I was like, yeah, we'll personally guarantee the loan. No big deal. So that debt now is 100% on our shoulders as human beings, right? Um, so not only did the prior company buyout effectively not happen at all, plus we gave them the company essentially, right? They did give us a down payment, but they didn't chase us for that. Then the new company that was going super well um, we had to basically fire sale that to start to pay back the lender and not default, right? So the like that that the six exit was not much of one, right? We had to get what we could for it, selling to a competitor, and we got a little bit of money. But at the end of the day, I basically Simon and I both had probably mid six figures of personal debt suddenly side like on our shoulders and no companies, right? So we had this this debt. I had never had a job like a job job since I worked at a furniture store in high school. So for the first time in my life, I basically had to say like, all right, what am I going to do? Do I have to declare chapter 11? Like what is going to happen here? And thankfully in that 
like that exact same kind of time period, I listened to a podcast with Chris Saka from lower at the time, lowercase capital. And he had told a story about how he had gone like $25 million in debt in the 08 crash by crazy leveraging day trading and things like that. And then found a way to pay it back. I'm like, if this guy can do it for like 20 some million, like I can do it for a half a million. Well, a couple months later, so Simon and I went and got Silicon Valley jobs for the first time. Um, mimicked the act of building a company on our own. Like that's the kind of jobs we took, you know, basically being in charge of growing a business, right? Um, an early stage company. So it was right up our alley and it was going well. Um, but one day he didn't show up to work and he never had done that before in seven years. And he he was living in Canada and he'd gone backpacking in the Canadian Rockies with a friend of his who was mentally ill and his friend had kind of like a schizophrenic episode and killed him. And so, you know, all of that debt suddenly, aside from the grief that I experienced from, you know, um, working with somebody for seven years as co-founders talking every day and just going through the swings of the entrepreneurial roller coaster today, it's like a marriage, right? At that point. And like, so he's gone and I had the choice. I said, I can either let this debt go to his next of kin, which like his parents are like retired school teachers in England or something like that. And I'm like, there's no way I can allow that to happen. Like, just give me all that. So I called the lender, told them they were, you know, thankfully very accommodating. And, and, uh, over the course of the next couple of years was able to just hustle as hard as I possibly could even like contracted for the lender at times, like nights and weekends, everything that I could to just hustle and consult and very little sleep. Um, but it was like a crazy ride looking back on it. Eventually got back to zero. And that was the day that I submitted my resignation um, to go out and start something again. Cause I knew that, Hey, this is what I was put on this earth to do. I made one mistake that I will never make again. It just happened to have all these domino effects, right? Um, so if I clean up that one mistake, this reality would have gone very, very, very differently. So I will never make that mistake again. Uh, but like, I do need to rebuild now. So like a lot of people, when they Google me on the internet, they're like, this guy probably has like a hundred million in the bank. No, that's not the case. Like I was actually back well below zero after six exits and then had to rebuild. And thankfully now I'm doing, you know, quite well again and <laughs> things like that after two more, um, but it was a pretty wild time for a little bit there. Wow. I w went through so many emotional loops there and uh, the anxiety rising of that stress and that risk and yeah. financial pressure. Um, I think you've really brought to light uh, two key pieces of a recognizing your own self-awareness when you are riding high after those wins or those big exits, like, that should be the moment you should be twice as conservative and considerate and careful. And we do the same. I did the same thing after my first exit. Like, oh, this is easy. Let's do this again. And then burn through everything I had on the next project, just getting way too excited, not paying attention to the right details. Um, so I love seeing how you were able to kind of reinforce uh, that perspective that I think a lot of people, especially if they are in that one well, they've been on one ride, one boat the whole time. Um, the waters are a lot rougher in other other areas, other ways. Um, so I'm very grateful that you bring that to front of mind. Um, and then the other lesson I'm seeing here is just simple perseverance. 
yeah. simple perseverance, it would have been so easy to throw in the towel and just play the victim, play the blame game, play look at how this happened, look how this happened. But you yeah, I mean, up, it would be easy to make that decision, right? It'd be easy to to make the decision to play that blame game, but it would not be easy to live the life that would would stem from playing the blame game, right? You're you have to wake up and that is your life every other day, <laughs> and it's just not a good situation, right? So. In a, in a moment like that, it's just who, when you look back at your life, is this a decision that you'd be proud of or not? And if it's that binary, um, uh, there is no decision at that point. Yes. You keep, keep trucking and, um, you know, you're going to make mistakes and sometimes those mistakes are going to be incredibly expensive. Uh, but, uh, you know, they also at the same time will shape you into a much better form of, like for, for me, just made me a much better entrepreneur. Uh, was able to eat an entire humble pie and said, "All right, I'm not gonna have. I'm not gonna get off on this idea of being this like authority figure. Uh, I'm gonna go back to being a student every single day of my life. If people want some knowledge and they seek me out, uh, and I know that they want to learn, I'm happy to share. But it's definitely not. It hasn't been until very, very recently something that I'll proactively do and distribute. Uh, so that's new as of." earlier this year wow no i love it love it love it uh the way we were able to capture that story and just be able to zoom out and see it on a macro level that is the journey a lot of people see they often always look at the single company single startup to exit journey but zooming out one level higher is where a lot of the magic a lot of the power is um that you mentioned and in your journey, I would love to hear, uh, since you have been apparently have some wild stories under your belt, um, I'm curious, what is the craziest or most creative way you've seen somebody earn attention or business? A wild way to open the door. Uh, and this could be something you've done or perhaps the other direction somebody's done to you. Um, so... It's it's hard to define crazy here. Craziest way to earn maybe, attention, maybe most um, most innovative. Uh, yeah, <laughs> innovative. So, so if a friend of mine, uh, his name is Sean Porat. He, I was an advisor for one of his companies um, once upon a time. It's called Scorely, and um, it was trying to be like a better version of the Better Business Bureau. Really, really cool idea. Um, but at the same time, he had kind of like another project that he was working on, which. I kind of laughed at the time. I thought it was kind of kind of fun. Um, wasn't sure exactly what would happen. And this company was called Open Fortune. And I'm not sure if you've heard of Open Fortune, but Open Fortune basically is advertising on the backs of what comes in the center of a fortune cookie. And these guys now have, I think they're doing like 30 or 40 or 50 million a year. And they are the only vendors, to my knowledge, that that do this. Like they have a network of every Chinese restaurant they distribute these free fortune cookies to. I think Gary V's invested. Like a bunch of really big time marketers have like gotten involved, and they just continue to grow because of the fact that there is a moment in time where this is the only thing that your attention is on, and like because of that, like that is what they're selling. They're selling a moment in time where that is all your attention is on. You're reading it and like that pl- is planted in your mind. So it's a really, really interesting type of business that works fantastically well. Um, and, you know, so that would, I would say that one would be the, the most innovative that I've seen 
I love, I, I love this world and simultaneously like despise it at the same time in these moments. <laughs> You're like the most amazing, amazing, successful concepts like are literally so simple, so simple. Uh, I mean, obviously amazing execution. Um, they've pulled off on that distribution range, um, and basically dominating, just taking that entire market, the fortune cookie advertising market. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to the future. <laughs> totally. hundred percent. Oh. If you think about it, like in terms of the lens of like where we are today, that's one of those things that is not going to be disrupted by AI y'all. Like there are certain businesses that like just will not, they cannot be disrupted by AI. Their AI is not going to put an ad in your fortune cookie for you, right? That's just hustling at the end creativity that these guys came up with. And we actually advertised through there at one point. It was really, really cool. So, um, so yeah, that's something to think about. That is amazing. No, I love it. Um, and it's, it leads us right into the next section where I really want to see your secret sauce for how you're approaching uh, your unique approach, at least to your current business. You're rocking and rolling here. Let's jump into your uh, specific system or strategy or process or approach, because I know you guys are integrating AI um, into heavy, heavy growth marketing, growth hacking, um, as, as the buzzwords will send us that direction. Uh, what exactly does that, where did that origin story or strategy stem from and for this business model? So a little bit of context here, like if you're a bootstrapped entrepreneur these days, you're going to be fed very specific ads, just always going to happen. And Oftentimes the people who are advertising to you have a vested interest in you believing a specific thing. Uh, hate to call him out, but Russell Brunson is one of them, right? Uh, Russell Brunson, for example, you're one funnel away, right? One funnel away. Now here's the deal. Um, that can work and it can work really well for a small fraction of companies to just focus on the linear path, like dollars in the top, customers out the bottom, rinse and repeat. Uh, very simple for most people to wrap, to wrap their heads around. Now, if you take an alternate approach and you go into Silicon Valley unicorn land, not a single company there is going to ever say, you're one funnel away, or they're going to be believing that. They're thinking bigger. They're thinking about compounding growth, exponential growth. They're thinking about network effects and viral loops. And they're thinking about um, how to ensure that every single customer they bring in adds to the the potential magnitude of their growth, you know, their ability to grow, right? And they have a very, very specific process that company, that people inside these companies that are wildly successful market leaders, um, like there's a very specific process that many of them follow, but even some of the ones that are middle of the pack just don't feel like they can or, or will. And the best of the best do. Uh, and it's very different than the one funnel away mentality that the vast majority of entrepreneurs, because they don't know how to go raise venture capital or anything like that, which he has a really lovely line that he always talks about, or he used to talk about on his podcast, entrepreneurs that didn't cheat and raise venture capital. And I've, I've bootstrapped a lot of businesses. I've raised venture capital. Venture capital is a tool. Like if I, if I look at that as like, this is a tool to help me grow faster and manipulate my operating model and balance sheet to the point where I can enable that, it can be seen in the same vein as ClickFunnels, a tool to accelerate my results. 
So I think it's um, it's asinine to believe that uh, and to allow yourself to be conditioned in that way. And if you were to take the um, the tactics and the tools that Silicon Valley unicorns are consistently using over and over to build these compounding and exponential growth stories that become go from zero to you know a billion dollars a year in you know, three years or something like that with the same number of people that you would see at, you know, an internet marketing company who is one funnel away that does, you know, five to $7 million a year, right? Same staff, very different outcome. One of, not the only, but one of the processes that's missing from those, from like one of those equations, but not the other is a growth team who has a very specific attitude in mind. First and foremost, your growth model quantitatively it's going to be a deterministic system that builds purposeful compounding results where the structure of your product and the structure of your company is just greater and greater with every passing loop, so to speak. So Brian Balfour from HubSpot talks about this a lot. Um, he partnered with Andrew Chen and you know, they came out with an education company that taught some of these concepts early on now. like the, All they do is teach and they teach to Silicon Valley employees specifically. You have to apply to get in and it's hard to get in if you're not a Silicon Valley employee, right? So like the distribution of this information outside of that sphere is a lot lower than you would expect. Yep. So for example, like, you know, what we do at Growth Team is like every, um, every client that we work with, we create, we use what we call, what we call the method method, which is like, we're creating your, customer avatars in a way that mimics like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis as a method actor, he's going to embody the role of oh, that particular- okay. Love yeah, it. Love he's going to embody the role of that specific character for like a year before he'll go and be in front of the camera. So we want to get to know the customers on a cellular level in that way. So effectively, what everything we do comes back to that avatar. And most, most entrepreneurs- Maybe they work with a branding firm, they give them four customer avatars, and they sit on the shelf all day and collect dust. Uh, we use these every day, right? And we want to iterate on our understanding of what makes these users think, feel, and behave the way they do so we can act accordingly. Now, the way to do that is to have like a robust dissection of a hypothesis of what that avatar is in various cases. We want to know who is the top 10% user in terms of um, the, the amount of money they're paying you per month, the, the length of time that they stay, uh, the number of users they invite on your behalf, et cetera, et cetera. We want to know who that user is. We also want to know the inverse. Who's like the worst user. We want to get to know what, you know, their patterns are and why they all come to the product. So we'll go through then and, um, get to know the business quite a bit, but we'll start a rapid experimentation cadence similar to the one that Sean Ellis, like the godfather of growth hacking himself. Uh, who thankfully, like I was able to develop a relationship with a couple of years ago, um, like he teaches high tempo testing, right? And we've actually kind of tried to take that a step forward and say, all right, can we in some way um, experiment in a way that allows us to, with every successful test and every failed test, iterate on that customer avatar so we can get to know and validate does our understanding of what make these makes these customers think, feel, and behave the way they do, is that reinforced by these experiments, right? And we want to run at least two to three concurrent growth experiments for all four of the growth levers we target, acquisition, activation and habit creation, monetization, 
and retention and engagement, those four. We want two to three running always to iterate on a specific initiative that would target a specific avatar, right? And the more of those we do, assuming the test is either a success or a failure, we get to iterate on those avatars. So the worst case scenario is an inconclusive test. And that's where a lot of people go wrong and they're like, let's just test headlines. Let's just see which one works better. And we'll go with that one, right? And that's how most people, like they'll be like, this is an A-B test. It is absolutely considered an A-B test, but you're not gonna get anything from that test. Even in best case scenario, you'll get a new headline. Great work. You don't understand why that worked. You don't understand the psychology that you just validated or invalidated. So you can't reuse that anywhere else. And in kind of Silicon Valley product land, they talk a lot about this concept of data network effects, where the more data pours into a system, the better the experience becomes for the other users that um, that use that product, right? We want to create data network effects for every subsequent test, meaning like we've validated or invalidated dozens and dozens and dozens of experiments um, for you know a client, right? And because of that, our win rate just gets cranked up and up and up, right? So um, I could, t- as you can probably tell, I could talk about this stuff all day long. Um, and we we're using right now, right now behind the scenes, we we're building AI to do a lot of this for uh, even bootstrapped entrepreneurs with a really thin budget. We are building a Silicon Valley caliber VP of growth with various forms of AI that are interconnected. Um, and based on what I've seen so far behind the scenes, it is going to be incredibly exciting when we release it to the general public. So, um, we're still a couple months away from that sort of thing, but, uh, we are working with clients like one-to-one where we use some of these tools behind the scenes to create outcomes. Uh, we only work with a couple of them just because we want to keep our eye on the ball. Uh, but in working with them, we can validate or invalidate some of our hypotheses early on. Like what does the sales process need to look like? Uh, what is the core experience? Because the customer doesn't care how the job gets done. They want the outcome. We're driving a lot of that process with humans, cobbled, cobbling together several tools behind the scenes right now. Customer just wants the outcome. If they can get the outcome better, faster, cheaper with a SaaS product, that's exactly what we'll do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, oh, my God. I'm. <laughs> it's breaking my heart that we're we're on a countdown timer here because I am in the same nerd zone here of I could dig three levels deeper. Um, but what you've really brought to the surface here uh, is a really rigid and thorough focus on endless optimization and strategic experimenting. Uh, one of the key things you pulled out, which I thought was interesting, in the traditional context of a control and a variable, most people are the ones changing, change the headline, change the message, change the this. You guys were actually swapping the avatars, seeing what the avatar is, whereas a lot of people, I think, come into the baseline, the avatar is set, and then we switch messaging, switch this, switch this, switch this picture, but you've really flipped that coin just a simple little shift in perspective of using the same you know what works you know what's working from your other experiments go find who it works better for out there and that's a great like shift in perspective one of the big mistakes honestly is like when people are like oh let's test headlines right the assumption that you're making is the current path that you're putting the customer through creates the necessary 
uh, conditions in their mind that will allow them to continue and that the only important variable is the headline. The important variable is actually the emotion, the logical reinforcement, the uh, catering directly to their core motivation and the reward, the perceived reward they'll get at the end of that rainbow. What's on the page is a tool to catalyze those outcomes in the mind of the customer. So if, if I basically say, what is this user feeling at this moment in time, which I get clues on based on how we've iterated on the avatar and what their conditions are, what do they need to feel to get them to move forward, which is part of our hypothesis? And what conditions can we create in this moment to catalyze that feeling, the logical reinforcement, the speaking directly to the motivation and the perceived reward alignment, right? And that is what we want because we don't want any inconclusive tests. If, if that has to be a home run swing that's like dramatically different than what they're seeing right now, that's exactly what we have to do. Wow. No, I love it. I love it. And it really reinforces the different paths that are available, the paths to growth, the paths to optimization. Um, so many of us have that, this kind of singular <laughs> funnel like type of mentality. I love just every sentence you bring. We just zoom out a little bit higher, see a bit, little bit more of that uh, humble pie <laughs> is what I'm, I'm seeing as we zoom out further and further. Um, absolutely amazing. We do got to sneak through uh, to our final portion of the show we're gonna play the fastest game show ever quick three rounds and then we got a little prize for you on the other end are you ready to play this or that i'm ready <laughs> all right first one randomly generated options here let's see what we got a lake or ocean what type of man are you uh i gotta go with ocean and nice. that's where I'm at right now. So respectable move, the Cali, Cali man. Uh, okay, next one: toys or candy? Uh, probably candy. Unfortunately. Oh, that's all right. There's no judgment here, and no right or wrong answers. That's the best part about this game. Uh, last one. Oh, dogs or cats? Uh oh. Wow. I mean, see, that's a big one because. Um, my wife's got two cats. Uh, they're here in our apartment. I had to kick them out of the room before we started the interview. Uh, but I grew up with dogs. So I would say both for sure. But right now we're a cat house. Oh, okay. We were, Fair enough. Fair enough. It can uh, evolve over time. <laughs> I lo love it. Love it. Well, congratulations for beating the game. Well played, sir. Uh, your prize is your pitch. Why don't we go ahead and hear all of this awesome stuff that we've tapped into your guys' strategy, your system, your approach. Who exactly is this for and where can they go to get started following your world, your journey, growth team, all of that. Give us the scoop. Yeah. If you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, just look up my name, Travis, Stefan, two F's, two E's. Uh, and in terms of what we're building right now, so it's subscription-based founders only. Like those are the only growth, not that the methods don't work for other types of businesses. Those are the growth models we've mapped. And those are the ones that we're focused on because it's just easier to create faster growth with that model, in my opinion. Um, so when we're held to that standard in terms of that guarantee that uh, you mentioned at the top, um, that's what enables us to do that more frequently. So um, if you go to mygrowthteam.com, the company is Growth Team AI, and we we will be releasing on that. But uh, uh, you'll see a very lo-fi funnel, actually, um, where like I'm basically on camera talking about this stuff. 
Uh, and it's meant so that we can bring folks through as like training data and uh, also to help bootstrap the company. I'm trying not to raise money for this one. I don't know if that'll be uh, the case or not, but uh, um, we're trying not to, right? So um, it's not the cheapest product in the world. It's not the cheapest offering. So if you're you know scraping against the bottom and you need somebody to come save you, we're not the correct people for you. Uh, but you know, if you're, if you're wanting hands-on help and a really juicy guarantee to ensure that we're putting our money where our mouth is, and you're at, let's say like 50 K a month or more, or you're venture backed and you've got a little bit of a war chest, but you're more, um, cash rich than time rich. Uh, you know, we basically work with you. We come into the business, act as your fractional VP of growth, run the process, work with you and your subject matter experts and collaborate with your team to create those compounding growth stories. So um, that's who we are now, who will be a few months from now, we will find out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if that if that's you, um, you know, reach out. We don't work with everybody. Again, we want our full focus as much as possible on product iteration, but we do need folks in working with us to make sure that that reality can be birthed into existence faster. Yes, yes, yes. And 100% recommend uh, that follow. We'll go ahead and have that hooked up here in the show. Uh, so please do go ahead and hook that up, you guys. I uh, have been following from the outside here. Um, and at minimum, even if you're not getting involved, uh, following what Travis is up to uh, is absolutely amazing. So I have to give you a quick moment of appreciation and acknowledgement um, just because I do this all day, every day, looking at... Uh, People building it right uh, and plenty of them building it wrong. Um, and you have a unique lane of you've been in the trenches, <laughs> you've seen the darkness um, and you've really taken a community service, almost public service mentality and bringing that uh, to the masses in a special way, in a better way, taking those lessons, shifting other perspectives. Um, and it really is meaningful for other folks like myself and many of the other people here that are looking for all of the paths um and you're out there just trailblazing every day man i am sincerely grateful for it it is noticed and deeply appreciated right on right on well i appreciate you and what you do as well definitely respect what you're uh the information you're disseminating for founders who need to hear it uh very noble work good sir oh thank you so much well let's tap into our final Final question. The rest was all very nerdy system strategy AI. Uh, but this last question's for one specific listener. They might be stuck starting or perhaps just trying to take it to that next level. What final words of advice or motivation can you share to send that listener into beast mode? Yeah. What a, what a great question. Um, you know, what I would say to, to somebody like this who, you know, might be feeling stuck, right? Um, oftentimes, the reason that we feel stuck, like in pursuit of something, or maybe we can't quite get off the couch to start, like there is nothing more strangely terrifying psychologically than having a dream come true. Suddenly, you don't have this what if in your mind that you get to live and think about all the time and the if only you're actually going to be tested and that's scary and and when you reach that dream it oftentimes doesn't feel like you thought it would and many people don't want to burst that bubble for themselves so 
uh, recognizing that you are the limitation that's keeping you stuck. Like you're in a prison that you built and you're also the guard of. Uh, and if you just kind of unlock the door and let yourself go fail and just continue to learn from that failure every single day, it's going to be super, super useful. You don't need a big idea. You don't need anything like that. Just go find, like choose a customer segment with money and readily available contact information that has a problem and go survey them relentlessly and then just build what they say. Like listen to how they describe the problem. Then you have your sales copy. Listen to where they say they're finding solutions and you have your, your, um, your advertising channels and your marketing channels. Listen to, you know, how much value they would unlock in their business by having a solution like this. And there you have your pricing model. Like if you just ask the right questions, the yellow brick road will be paved in front of you and all you have to do is follow it. Boom! There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to the B2Beast podcast. This has been Travis Steffen. You're a beast.